It has two little cute ears, and it has a long, bushy tail, and he climbs trees. What am I describing? The little boy raises his hand. He goes, I'm pretty sure you're describing a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> because that's the churchy answer. So I want you to answer honestly with the scenario. From your flesh, from your sinful flesh, how would you respond to this? Someone you know, someone you've done time with, some not in prison, just time. <laughs> you've done life with, you've eaten meals with, you consider them a good friend. They betray you. They stab you in the back. From the flesh, how do you respond usually? Anger, revenge, anything else? Hurt? Anybody just like forget you? I'm done. I'm not going to talk to you again. We're done. From the flesh, that's how we respond. As humans, that's how we respond when we are betrayed. When a good friend stabs us in the back, there is no... Let's hold hands and sing kumbaya. It's, if I can have an opportunity, I'm going to get even. Today, our text in chapter 18 of the book of John, we are now at our study in the book of John where Jesus is now in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and the betrayal happens. Judas, who has spent three years with Jesus, done life with Jesus, has seen precious times with Jesus, has eaten meals with Jesus, has, has I mean, has seen Jesus do amazing, is now betraying his friend. He is stabbing Jesus in the back. And Judas has now arrived with this mob of soldiers and officers in the garden. And in fact, if you just look at verse 5, in chapter 18. I just wanted to look, just let's get us a, a glimpse of Judas here before we break this open. And at the end of verse 5, it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And the them is not Jesus and the 11, but the crowd that he brought. I sit and wonder, was Judas kind of all pomp and just standing there with his arms crossed? Did he have a smug look on his face? Was he like, yeah, it's about time. What I want us to see here in our text today is despite the betrayal, despite the fact that someone he considered a friend, someone whom he washed the feet of, someone who he ate his last meal with, Despite this betrayal, Jesus does not respond like we would. Jesus responds in a way that is truly heavenly. And there are six things that I want us to see, how, what, what, six things that Jesus displays in the garden, that if any one of these six, six things, if Jesus decided, I will not do this, all of us have no hope. These six things that Jesus displays are vitally important that he displays them 
because of the eternal implications they have. And so let's look at these six things. Here's the first thing that Jesus displays in the garden. And here's number one. I would encourage you to take notes, follow along in a Bible. But here's the first thing that Jesus displays. Jesus displayed obedience. He displayed obedience. So in chapter 18, let's look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, he remember, as, as we have looked at, or, at chapters 13 through 17, that was the time where Jesus had his last hours with the disciples. He, he had a bunch of teaching he had to deliver to them. He prayed with them. That's all done. There's no more talking here. No more teaching, no more praying of what he was doing. When he had spoken these words, it says he went out. I would circle those words. He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Remember the progression from that night. Jesus had been in the upper room with the disciples where he had the Last Supper, washed their feet, did all of that, had some time of teaching. He left, had already left the upper room, and he had been in the city still. And he had been walking with his disciples. When it says that he went out, meaning he, he's now left the city. He, left, he went through one of the city gates. And he crosses a valley called the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley was between the east wall of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And, and it was this place in this valley, across the valley, was the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus went. And in fact, in the book of Luke, it says that Jesus made it his custom to go here with his disciples. This was a very familiar place. It was probably a place where they would relax together a lot and just get away from the crowds and have that quiet time, a place where he probably taught the disciples and prayed with the disciples on many times. This is where he is now at. He is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. But I just like how it says, he went out. He went out. And remember at the beginning of John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said, he said, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus knows what's about to take place. He knows his hour has come. His death is now imminent. But what does he do? He goes out. He goes out. Of the city. He goes to the garden. I, I love the idea, the picture there. He goes out. He is moving to his death. He's not backing away. Undaunted, unfazed, moving toward what is coming. He goes out, walking in obedience. He goes out because he knows he has a mission. His mission is not accomplished yet. His mission wasn't to do miracles. His mission wasn't just to feed, a a feed 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. His mission was not to raise people from the dead. His mission wasn't to have suppers with people. His mission only had one purpose, to seek and save the lost. He had one mission, to come and die on a cross to save humanity. That was his mission. His mission was not yet accomplished, and so he had to go. He knew that his Father in heaven had given him a mission, had given him his marching orders. 
my son, this is what you are called to do. Anything less than that, your mission will fail. You are called to be a sacrifice for sin. Get it done. And on this night, Jesus went out in full obedience to the Father. And he goes out and he goes to the garden. But as I thought about that, I said, but why to the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, why not, why not somewhere? I mean, think about it. He goes to a place where um, Judas knows he'll be. Why not somewhere else? I said, like, you were already in an upper room. You were already comfy cozy. Why not just hang out there? Why leave in the first place? Why go to this garden? I believe there's two things about the garden to give Simony of what it symbolizes and what it represents. One, it represents obedience. Okay? There are two significant gardens mentioned in the Bible. One is this one, the Garden of Gethsemane. What's the other? The Garden of Eden. Two different gardens completely contrasted from each other. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, the first Adam, he disobeyed God. And sin and death were brought into the world. And the first Adam was cast out of the garden. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. The second Adam obediently enters into the garden. And through Jesus' obedience, death and sin are dealt with. Through Jesus' obedience, life and righteousness now comes. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane represents obedience, whereas the Garden of Eden represented disobedience. The Garden of Eden represented sin. The Garden of Gethsemane represents life and forgiveness and righteousness and eternity. So it represented obedience, but here's the second thing it also represents. It represents suffering. You see, the garden, the, the name Gethsemane actually means um, oil press because it was actually an olive garden, like an olive grove. And, and so people, harvesters would go to the garden and they would pick the olives, okay? Now, in order to get oil, olive oil, what has to happen to that oil, to, to that olive? It's got to be crushed. It, it's got to be smashed. It, it, it's got to feel the pressure. In order for that oil to come out of that olive, it has got to be pressed. Jesus is going to feel the pressure of suffering in a matter of moments. The whole mission of Jesus was that he would rushed, as Isaiah tells us, for our benefit. He would be smitten. He would be broken. He would be crushed. He would be delivered for our benefit. He was going to feel the suffering. He was going to feel in this garden, he was going to experience, if you can kind of think of it, the waves and billows of God's wrath. He was going to take that upon himself. 
and he would be crushed and he would experience suffering. But despite all that, he remained obedient. At any moment, as he was walking to the garden, at any moment when he saw Judas, or who, he, at any moment he could have been like, I'm done. Not going to do it. Don't want to do it. And he could have refused. But he didn't. Because Jesus remained obedient because he understood the bigger picture. He remained obedient because God desired to have a family with humanity. And the problem was, was humanity was separated because of sin. And there was only one way for that separation to be brought back. There was only one way for you and I to be brought back to God. And that was that there had to be bloodshed for sin. So Jesus obediently knows the bigger picture. And he remains obedient to the Father. And he goes out to the garden. So Jesus displayed obedience. Here's the second thing he displayed. He displayed willingness. He displayed obedience. He displayed willingness. So now look at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You see, a, a coward would have gone anyplace else. A man in fear would have hid himself. A man looking to escape and get away would have went entirely somewhere different, but not Jesus. He goes to the place where Judas knew he would be. Jesus knew that the Pharisees hated him. Jesus knew how, how the Pharisees regarded him. Jesus knew the Pharisees wanted to arrest him. Jesus knew that the religious leaders of that time wanted to kill him. He knew it. So what does he do? I'm going to make it easy for him. And I'm going to go to the place that is so obvious. And in obedience, he goes out. And he goes to the garden because he knows this has to take place. So Judas is, has arrived. And look at what it says in verse 3. Indicating verse 3 truly shows that Judas did not know Jesus. Verse 3, it says, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers. The NIV says a detachment of soldiers. It really, the, 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 the clearest meaning means a cohort. And a, a detachment of soldiers or a cohort of soldiers, the soldiers are Roman soldiers. Okay, remember, the Roman Empire ruled at this time. And, and this was a detachment of Roman soldiers. All right? Soldiers that don't mess around. And, and the Pharisees, how many of you know it wasn't Judas going to the Roman soldiers? It was the Pharisees who had, had some kind of dealings with the Roman army to be able to procure this amount. And here's how many people it would, at least, minimum, 200 soldiers. 
You know, we, we watch a lot of Jesus movies where Jesus is being crucified, and it's like six people out in the, out in the, the garden with their, their Lord. No. You first have a minimum, if not up to 600 soldiers. So it's somewhere between 200 and 600 soldiers are showing up in the garden. All right? But that's not all who he procured. He says, so having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went out there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Sometimes in movies, we see the Pharisees out there. They weren't out there. They were probably back home eating some barbecue because they delegated. They sent the soldiers and they sent officers. The officers were temple officers. So... Because during, like, this is Passover time. So at the temple, um, how many of you know five people aren't showing up? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are just engulfing the streets of Jerusalem at this time. So at the temple, they're not just letting, you know, Mary, Joe, and Martha just show up and go into the temple. You need security in the temple, these officers. So you've got Roman soldiers and you've got the security officers of the temple now in the garden. And they show up with lanterns, torches, and weapons. When I read that, it sounds like an old Frankenstein movie. Man, we, we're, we're going out. Get your pitchforks. Get your torches. We're going out to get the monster. Showing that Judas did not know Jesus. Because, well, kind of, sort of, yes, no. I think Judas did know Jesus in a way at this. I know what he can do. I've seen his power on display. And he's going to pick a fight. See, I think he was expecting Jesus to, to come at them. He knew what Jesus could do, but I think he was expecting Jesus to utilize it. Showing that he really didn't know what Jesus' mission was. So these... Soldiers show up. These officers are now showing up. Judas is there standing with them. But look at verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Okay, that's key. Jesus, knowing this is about to take place. He knew it. He knew everything that was going to happen to him. He wasn't like going, oh, I think this may happen. He knew it, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Look what it says. Knowing all that happened to him came forward. He, he, he didn't try to hide himself. He, he didn't try to run. He didn't hear the crowd and go, okay, guys, come on. Let's get out of here. Let, let, let's go hide ourselves. No, no, no. He heard this crowd, okay? He heard the soldiers marching. He heard the, the think of, these the soldiers would have been dressed in, in, in their armor. He would have heard the metal clanging. He would have heard the, the shields hitting. He would have heard all of this. And what's he do? Willingly, he comes forward. Willingly. You see, in, earlier in the book of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, he goes, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down on my accord. Willingly, Jesus went forward. He was in the garden. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, if I would have heard that, probably even felt the ground shaking, I would have been like, nope, I'm done. I'm out of here. Forget this. It's not worth it. God, I'm coming home. But he doesn't because of obedience and willingness. He was willing to go to the soldiers knowing all that was about to happen to him. He was willing to do it because he knew the bigger picture. He was willing to come forward. He was willing to be arrested. He was willing to lay his life down for you and for me because he knew that was the bigger picture. Jesus displayed willingness. Here's the third thing he displayed. Jesus displayed controlled power. He displayed controlled power. Again, verse 4, he says, Knowing what would happen to them, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now here in our English text, it has the word he. In the original text, it was not in there. Translators added the word he to make it more readable. It would have basically, he would have just said, I am. And when he said those words, I am, it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, or just I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see, when he says, I am, he basically just declared, I am God. He, 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 he spoke the name of the Lord. I am is the Old Testament um, tetragrammat. Close enough, isn't it? It's the Hebrew name of God. When, when Moses says, who, who shall I tell him? When I go into Egypt, tell him I am. Just I am. And so now, here is Jesus in the garden declaring, I am. These guys come, you know, with, with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons. The soldiers would have had, they would have had their long swords. You know, they would have been ready for war. These guys are coming out for a fight. Jesus, and, and all Jesus has to do is, I am. Whoosh! And they fall over. Now, why did they fall over? Because I believe that just in that moment, Jesus was showing them, I am not even close to being a victim. I want you all to know how in control I really am right now. That you have no control over this whatsoever. And I believe he just gave them his power. He gave them a glimpse of his deity in that moment. He gave them a glimpse of, I'm not Jesus, a man. I'm the second person of the Godhead. And he spoke a word. I am. <laughs> Strike. All ten pins down. Without even trying. I think it also helped Judas go, did I make a mistake? Because how I many you know Judas went down too? 
because he was standing with them. Jesus showed them controlled power. You see, in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to see this here in just a second, when Jesus, when Peter lops off the ear of the servant, and Jesus told him, put your sword away. He goes, and he told Peter, he goes, do you not think that I could call down legions of angels to deliver me? He's like, Peter, you, 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 don't, you, you, you don't have a clue of what's going on here. I have the power to do whatever I want, but I'm not going to do it. Why? Because he understood the bigger picture. He was walking in obedience and he was willing to lay his life down because he understood this is not about me per se. It is about these people. It is about saving humanity from their sin. They are lost forever if I don't do this. But I'm just going to give them a glimpse of who I really am. Controlled power. He controlled that so that way they could get a glimpse but he still let them know, I'm going to lay my life down. So he displayed control power. Look at the next thing he's going to display. Jesus, in number four, displays substitution. He displays substitution. So again, verse seven. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's talking about the 11, the 11 disciples. He's like, okay, you're here to arrest me. Let these men go because they have nothing to do with it. I'm going to put myself on the altar and sacrifice myself so they can be free. This is the first time that we see what we know the theology of substitutionary atonement. Jesus is substituting himself for these men. He's substituting his freedom for these men's freedom. He's substituting his arrest so they can go free. Substitutionary atonement. And this becomes a picture of what Jesus is doing for these 11 disciples, a picture of what is going to happen after the cross for all of humanity. You see, because the problem with us right now is apart from Christ, without Christ and without substitutionary atonement, every single one of us, all of humanity is eternally lost. There is no hope for anybody to go to heaven. Well, Jim, I can work my way to heaven. No, you can't because your sin stains you. You are a sinner. The Bible tells us every single one of us is a sinner. And it's our sin that causes us to die spiritually. It is our sin that causes humanity to be separated from God. And all of our righteous works, as the book of Isaiah says, are nothing but filthy rags before God because you're stained with sin. So substitutionary atonement is Jesus saying, I will obediently and willingly lay my life down, sacrifice myself for these people. And here's why Jesus has to do that. The Bible makes it very clear that sin has to be paid for. You don't get a free ticket out of, your, out of sinfulness. Sin has to be paid for. That's why being good doesn't work. 
Being religious doesn't work. Good works doesn't work. Your sin has to be paid for. And the only way it can be paid for, as the Bible says, blood must be shed. That's why in the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals day after day after day, hoping that could do it. But the book of Hebrews says that blood of animals is not sufficient for the forgiveness of sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross once for all. And he becomes the substitutionary atonement for your sin, for my sin. You see, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just a, a, a hit to evil, and it wasn't even a, a statement of love. Jesus' death on the cross did one thing, fulfilled the righteous requirements that God requires about sin. And God's required requirements for sin is that death has to take place. Blood has to be shed because sin has to be paid for. So you and I, we can't pay the payment in ourselves for our sin. So Jesus becomes the substitutionary atonement for you. So when you place your faith in Christ alone, when you admit, I'm a sinner, when you realize my sin separates me from God, and you realize I need a Savior, and you come to the place where you accept Christ as your personal Savior, what he did on the cross is your forgiveness. Substitutionary atonement. His death atones for your sinfulness. So he displayed Substitution, But look at verse 9. This is one of the great truths um, about why substitutionary atonement is so important. Look at verse 9. He says this was about him saying, let these men go. He says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Of those whom he gave me, I have lost none. Except for Judas, who was that was already foreplayed out. But what Jesus is doing, he's quoting Old Testament scripture. And Old Testament prophesied that on this night, they wouldn't be lost. And that is a picture of future church people. And what I mean by this, because of substitutionary atonement, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, nothing can cause you to lose it. Nothing can take you away. Nothing can snatch you out of his hands. Nothing can separate you from... If you truly know and are a believer in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and you are forever secure. You see, that's why people who believe in good works and believe that if I'm just good enough, if I'm just kind enough, if I give enough to, to, to charities, if I go to church enough, if I just do a lot of good things... I, I, that gets me to heaven. But here's the thing. If you ever ask somebody who believes in good works about getting to heaven, and you ask them this question, hey, are, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Here's what they usually say. I hope so. And here's why. Because there's no 100% guarantee of knowing will my good outweigh my bad. You don't know. And I think it's a little too late to stand before God and go, can you, can, can you do the figures for me, God? Because I want to find out, how, how did I? Jesus eliminates all that. Jesus is like, if you know me as your Savior, I've atoned for your sin. 
I substitute myself for you. So if you are in me, you are in me forever. And nothing will cause you to be lost. Such a great truth. Here's the fifth thing that Jesus displays. He displayed mercy and grace. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter having a sword. Let me stop there. How many of you ever heard people just really like get their undies in a wad about Peter having a sword? Like, why did Peter have a sword? Oh my gosh, and he was supposed to be a disciple of Jesus. What's he have a sword for? I mean, what? we got to remember that in our English Bibles, we use one word, sword. But in the original manuscripts and stuff, in the Greek, the Greek language had different words for our one English word, sword. So there was one Greek word for a sword that meant a long sword, like a Roman soldier sword. So you're, you're pulling it out, and you're going to use that for battle. Okay, it was a double-edged, very sharp sword that they went out and they could cut with and fight with. But there was also a second kind of sword, a dagger or a long knife. It's kind of like, I don't know why this, how many of you remember um, Crocodile Dundee, that movie? Remember when he's like, that's not a knife, that's a knife, just a long knife. That's what Peter would have had, a long knife. Now you're like, well, why did he have a knife? Back then, it was common for people, especially men, to have a knife, okay? Because knives were used in various occupations. Peter was a fisherman, all right? So if you're out on a boat and, and, and a sail like, gets all tied up and, and knotted up and you can't get it out, what are you going to use to loosen that sail up with? your teeth or are you going to go cut the cord if your nets made out of rope and stuff get tangled up how are you going to loosen them up how can you if they get caught on something how do you get it out as a fisherman you pull your knife out and you're cutting it open to get it loose also back then they didn't have a walmart or a hy-vee where i'm like hey who, want, who, who wants chicken the night for supper and you just go down to the store and buy it so when you wanted to eat something some meat how did you get it you killed it and how would you kill an animal back then with a knife having a knife in jesus's time was very common so peter having a knife on himself Obviously, Jesus didn't care he had a knife because you think Jesus knew that Peter had a knife? I kind of do, but yet he allowed him to carry it. Why? Because it was common. Peter, every, so everybody repeat this. Peter having a knife, not a big deal. Not a big deal. The big deal was how he used it. That is the key because look at what Peter does. So in verse 10, Peter, having a sword, that's not the issue, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. That's the issue. It's not Peter having a sword. Peter wasn't rebuked by Jesus because he carried a sword. Peter was rebuked by Jesus because he used it wrong. Okay? Peter, from his flesh, remember I just asked you all, how in your flesh, how would you respond like this? We would respond 
Tell me the truth. Are you going to respond like Jesus or Peter in this kind of situation? Peter, we all would. Because that's how we respond in the flesh. Peter responded in the flesh, and he cut off. How many of you know he wasn't lame for the year? He was trying to take that knife right between the, the, the head. That's why if you go back in, one, in, in the other Gospels, Jesus is like, Peter, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. He's like, Peter, you, you about messed up your life, bro. You, not only was I going to be arrested, you'd been arrested with me because you just killed a man, and you'd been put to prison. You put to death. And you would have messed everything up. So the issue wasn't what Peter had, it's what, how he used it. But the real thing we need to see really isn't about Peter. In the book of Matthew, it's, John, doesn't, John doesn't record it, but Matthew did, is after Peter slices his ear off, Jesus turns to the servant and he heals him miraculously. The ear is put, he cut the ear off. Now, did Jesus pick it up and put it back on? We don't know. Did he grow a new one? We don't know. But he healed his ear. Now, think about that for a moment. This high priest servant, was he friend or foe? He was foe, man. He was the enemy. He was out there. He, maybe he had his pitchfork. Maybe he had his torch. He's like, down with the beast, down with the beast. You know, he's like, he, he was probably, I mean, he wasn't there to make friends with Jesus. He was there to see this guy arrested. He was there because he was the high priest servant. He knew what the high priest was about and what he wanted to do. He was wanting to help the high priest see this man die. So let me ask you. Did Malchus deserve to have his ear healed? Yes or no? No. He's the enemy. He's there. If anything, Jesus should have been like, Peter, good job, buddy. Way to take care of that for me. Pat him on the butt and scoot him over. No. He rebukes Peter, but heals Malchus. You see, what that does is Jesus just displayed grace and mercy. You've got to remember what grace and mercy and for mercy is you not getting what you deserve. Grace is you getting what you don't deserve. So in the spiritual context of it, Malchus, he deserved his ear cut off. He deserved it because he was there to arrest Peter's friend, his, his teacher. And Peter's like, that's not happening. He deserved that. He didn't, he didn't deserve to be healed. But Jesus flips the table. Jesus says, you know what? You deserve to die, Malchus, just to bleed out. You deserve that. But I'm not going to treat you how you should, how, how you should be deserved. I'm not going to treat you that way. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Be healed. And heals him physically. Now, this applies to you and me because Jesus may not heal you physically, but if you know him as Savior, he has healed you spiritually. Which how many of you know is far much greater than being healed physically? Because you can be healed physically in every aspect. You could, you could be paralyzed and, 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 and get up and walk, but if you die in your sin, you still go to hell. 
So being healed physically doesn't mean anything if you're not healed spiritually. So in a spiritual context, here's the thing. You and I, we don't deserve anything from God because we're the sinners. God has every right. How many of you know God's, God's God? We're not. And he has every right to go, you all are lost because you're the sinner. But here's the thing. God does not treat us and give us what we deserve. We all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve eternal separation. He doesn't give us that. He gives us a way out. He gave us Christ to die for us. And what he gives us is salvation. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us righteousness through what Christ, does, what Christ did on the cross. You see, grace and mercy. And Jesus displayed that there, and he still displays that to us today. And then lastly, Jesus displayed submission. So if you look at verse 11, it says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then the band of soldiers and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him to Annas. But notice he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Remember, John doesn't record it, but Jesus has already spent time away praying. And he prayed to the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And the cup that he's talking about is the cup of suffering. The cup of, the, of God's wrath being poured out on him. And, and, and Jesus knew this is, Jesus is going to become sin. Jesus has never tasted sin. He has never experienced sin. But when he's on that cross and the wrath of God is poured on him, every sin of humanity is going to enter into Jesus. And he becomes sin. For one reason. And Paul says this in Corinthians, that Jesus became sin. It says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. And the only way that happens is that Jesus submits himself to drinking that cup. Because when he was in the garden praying before this, before this account here, he was praying, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. He prayed it three times. But when it was all said and done, he prayed these, will, th these words, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus knew after that, I'm going to submit myself to the Father. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to be willing in all this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I am going to submit to drinking that cup because it will save humanity. Any one of those six, if Jesus would have said this, nope, not going to do it. I'm not going to go out. I'm going I'm to kill all of those soldiers. I'm gonna just going to blow them away. I'm done with this. Imagine, I mean, think about this for a moment. Jesus is standing there looking at the venom in these soldiers' eyes, looking at the betrayal of Jesus' friend. Do you think Jesus could have just said, you're not worth it. Forget you guys. Humanity is not worth it. They're going to keep messing up. They're going to, keep, they're going to deny me. They're going to walk away from me. They're going to, they're going to, 
God, Father, this is not worth it. I'm done. And at any moment in that garden, Jesus could have chosen, I'm out of here. Let them all die. But he didn't. He made the decision to display these things for one reason. For you. Not corporately. You. Think about that for a moment. You, Jan Clark. You, Emily Anderson. He did it for you. Because he knew you and he saw you. And he knew you were a sinner. He knew each and every one of us in here. You can't save yourself. And you are lost for eternity. So you know what? I'm going to be your substitutionary atonement. If you'll just place your faith in me, you will be saved and have eternal life with me. Some of you in here, you've done that. You've accepted Christ as your savior. You believe in him. You know him. You live for him. You, you were like, Jesus, you're my all in all. And you know that if you were to die today, you know that you know that you know you are safe and secure and you will walk from this life into the presence of God Almighty. But some of you don't have that confidence. Perhaps some of you are still trying to, to, to on your own shirt tails, man. You're just like, I think I can, I think I can, I can white knuckle my way into heaven. I think I can, I, can, I think I can, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my resume before God. I can impress him. I'll work really hard. I'll be really good. I'll go to church. I'll be religious. But you still have never come to the place where you have asked Jesus into your life, confessed your sin. You've never admitted, I'm a sinner. You've never admitted that, you know what? I, I, I can't earn my way. You've never admitted and said, Jesus, come into my life and save me. You've never done that. And maybe today you need to do that because maybe you're one of those ones that if you were to... If I were to ask you, hey, if you were to die today, would you know that you know that you know 100% guarantee positivity, would you go to heaven? I think some of you would be like, I'm not sure. I hope so. I mean, I've been trying to be really good. I hope I go to heaven. Why, why, put, your, why, why put all your eggs in the hope basket? Put all your eggs in the Jesus basket because that won't fail you. Nothing will snatch you away. So today... If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you as I'm praying, examine your own heart. And maybe today, just right there in your chair, you just need to say, Jesus, forgive me. Man, I've been religious. I, I've been good. I've been kind. I, I've been popular. I, I, but, but, but I've never been saved. And Jesus, I pray that you would just come into my life, forgive me of my sin, be my Savior, take my life, let it be yours. Take me and use me for your glory. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to accept Christ as your Savior. So why don't we go before the Father, and let's just go into a word of prayer right now. If you would, just keep your, just, just bow your head, close your eyes, and just, as I'm praying, just have your moment with God. And as I said, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can right there in your seat, just you and him, pray that prayer. And I would even encourage you, even after the service of if you come to know Christ as your Savior today, talk to me. Talk to maybe someone you came with, someone you know, and say, hey, 
I did what Jesus, what, what Jim said, and, 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 and I've accepted Christ. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God. Jesus, you took our place. You died our death. You were the substitutionary atonement for us. We should be the ones going to hell. We should be the ones forever lost, but thank you that you displayed grace and mercy, and you still display that to us today. Thank you you don't treat us as our sins deserve because if you did, all, the, all of us have no hope. But thank you, Jesus, in you we have, have hope because you have died once and for all. And if there would be anyone in here today, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit's just speaking to their heart. Lord, I don't care how young they are, how old they are, how maybe they've been a member of a church before. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but Lord, if there's someone here today that has never truly accepted Jesus as their Savior, if they could not honestly say, I, I know that I know that I know I go to heaven today, if they have any doubts, any wonders, any fears, I pray today they would surrender their life and come to that place where they say, Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord today. So Father, we thank you that you love us so much you gave us Jesus to die for us. We thank you that it's only in faith in him that we are saved. And we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all